Well, we come to the last chapter, chapter 16. It's been a long haul in this book, and um, I can't say we finally made it because it's not over yet, but we're close. And, uh, you know, I'm always optimistic. I look at chapter 16 and say, I think we can finish it in one, but, but I think you probably know better. <laughs> Though if you look at the chapter, you notice that it's a whole list of names. Did you notice that? Some of you read it already, and you know that this is a chapter just filled with greetings. It's sort of the, the, the epistle's over. In fact, the very end of chapter 15, he says, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So we think, great, he's done. Well, he's not done. He adds a long P.S. And there's a list of names. And um, we look at this, and we have to remember that this is a letter it's more than just a great document that has challenged people and changed different movements in history, but it's a personal letter of Paul to a church at Rome, and he gives personal greetings in the last chapter. And it's an extensive list of names, and it simply expresses Paul's deep love and affection for the people at Rome. Um, you know, I found that a lot of people don't read this chapter. It's... it's uh, you know, they go, oh, a list of names, you know, that's, that's an unimportant. Well, it's unimportant unless your name's in it. If it's your name in it, it's very important. And let me say, these names were very important to Paul and are very important to God. And because they happen to be in Scripture, we study this as ardently and as applicationally as we would study John 3.16. It's not just the red letters that are anointed. It's all of the letters, including some of these personal names. And aren't you glad that God doesn't feel the way we feel about lists of names? Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, if you love Jesus Christ. And that's, a, that's an extensive list. And God loves every name on that list. And so we're going to study this list of names tonight. And I'll tell you one lesson it teaches us. Is that Paul was well-connected. A lot of times people get the idea that the apostle was this lone ranger, maverick missionary who would say, I don't need anybody, just me and God, and I'll go into the wild blue yonder, into the sunset on my horse, and I'll forge, you know, and go through the trail on my own, when in fact Paul was interpersonal. Paul had many relationships. Paul was part of the greater team. You might say he had the team concept as many businesses like to call it today, Paul did have the team concept. He never said, look at what I've done. But he always recognized the team of people that helped him in the ministry, and here he, he pays, in a sense, honor to those names in the Roman church. God never created us to be independent, but we are to be interdependent. That's one of the great lessons of the body of Christ. We are knit together and we depend on one another. In fact, that's a great phrase you may want to study sometime. If you have Bible software on a computer, it's really the best, fastest way to, to do it, but type in one another. And you'll find that that phrase, one another, occurs 79 times in the New Testament alone. There's a lot more times in all the Bible, but just 79 times in the New Testament. 36 of those times are in the writings of Paul alone. That's not even Peter and John, the words of Jesus, just Paul's writings. 36 times he uses the term one another. 
love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, etc. So you get the concept that he's speaking about fellowship. These are things we do not alone, but we do them with the body of Christ, with one another. And so even before we begin tonight, just because it is that list of names and we're drawing out those lessons, I ask you a question. First of all, what is your, what is your vertical relationship like? You know what I mean by that, don't you? Your relationship with God is your vertical relationship. You can say, oh, great, you know, me and God, we're like this. We talk every day. I love the Lord so passionately. The follow-up question that is related to that is, what are your horizontal relationships like? In the church, in the body of Christ, among Christian brethren, start with your own family. Ah, well, you know. I'm never, I've never been a people person, but, but I love God. I've even had people say, I love God. It's just God's people I, I don't get along with. Really. I've never understood that because as I read the New Testament, they are warp and woof of the same concept. You cannot love God unless you love God's people. Did you know that? It's part of the same stuff, all in the same family. If you love the Father, you love the Father's kids. 1 John chapter 3, he said, We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. That's how you can tell if a person really loves God. He loves God's kids. Then he said, He who does not love his brother abides in death. Now that's a strong statement. That means, in other words, our vertical relationship our relationship to God, is all connected with our horizontal relationship. You can tell that this relationship is right on because this plane is filled with love, and it shows that we pass from death into life. So how connected are you in the church? One writer asked the question, how many people are holding your trampoline? It's in fact, it was, a, it was a book, and that was one of the chapters, Who's Holding Your Trampoline? And he talks about life, um, that we're, it's like a big trampoline. There's a lot of people holding on to it, and as you bounce up and down through life's experiences, you best have some people holding that trampoline. One or two can't do it. We need a connection of people. Because sometimes we bounce pretty high, don't we? And we come down pretty hard, don't we? And we need people around us. And if, if, if you read this chapter just thinking of Paul's relationships, you think, goodness, this guy has a whole bunch of people holding his trampoline. And Paul was bounced up and down through a lot of life experiences, and he had this beautiful connection of people. Now, uh, again, we haven't even started this chapter yet, so probably we won't get done with it, because this is all introductory to it. But uh, I, I've often heard when I bring up these questions, uh, the sentiment often comes back, well, you know, people aren't very friendly to me. To which I always respond with that wonderful proverb, he who has friends must himself be friendly. He who has friends must himself be friendly. And the point is, take the initiative. Take the initiative. Be friendly with people. Reach out. You love them. You sacrifice your time. You do something for them. 
That will be an example to them, and they will reciprocate. And the Bible is filled with examples of that. I can think of, off the top of my head, Ruth. When Naomi and Ruth at that crossroads, and Elimelech had died, and Malon had died, and Chilean had died, and Ruth is going to go back to Moab, and Naomi's going back to Bethlehem, and they're waving goodbye. Ruth suddenly reaches out and says, Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And that started a lifelong relationship of Ruth and Naomi as they crossed back over to Bethlehem. Another example, and we've covered it not too far back on Sunday morning, is the story of Jonathan and David. Remember that? After David kills Goliath and Jonathan hears the testimony of David and the faith of David and Jonathan is compelled to take off his robe and wrap it around David and take his sword and his bow and his armor and give it to David, saying, in a sense, you deserve these, you're the warrior, and and he initiated a friendship with David that lasted a lifetime. He who has friends must himself be friendly. Now, you can operate from the basis of need, or you can operate from the basis of supply. When you operate from the basis of need, you demand things from others. I need, I want, you give. But when you operate from the basis of supply, then you offer yourself to other people. It's a wonderful place to be. I think Paul did that in so many of these cases, bringing different ones into his envelope of friendship and camaraderie in the gospel. And uh, I just want to come up and mention another uh, objection people have of when, whenever I bring this up. They say, yeah, you know, that, that's good, Skip, but I'm shy. Let me say this very tenderly. Get over it. <laughs> really, get over it. Because, you know, probably everyone else to some degree is when it comes to this. And, and when you take the initiative and become the example of love and servanthood, it's going to trickle down. It's going to trickle down. It's going to make a difference. So let's jump in. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is servant of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who is the firstfruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen, my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles and who were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And Stachus, my beloved. Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus, etc. You see how it's just a list of names, greetings. 26 names in all. 26 are mentioned, 24 by name, a couple indirectly. Paul mentions them mostly by name. Here's a couple things to note just about the list in general. We're not going to read it all and then go over it. We're just going to stop there and then go back. There's a mixture 
Jew, Gentile, male, female, slaves, and nobility. All in the church. Isn't that beautiful? It, it, in other words, it wasn't a church just of high-end people who lived in the rich part of town or just slaves who lived in the poor part of town or just a Jewish, Messianic Jewish congregation alone living like elitists among themselves or it wasn't just all Gentiles. It was a mixture, male, female, Jew, Gentile, rich and poor. And these were some of the notable ones that Paul knew. For instance, here's a few of the names, Amplius, Urbanus, Hermes, Philologus and Julia. These were common slave names. But then there were others. Thirteen of these names occur in ancient documents that refer to the household of Caesar. So there were many of noble birth that were in the Church of Rome. Also, nine out of the 26 names in this list are women. He's not just writing to all guys. Nine of them are women. Four of them, he says, labored much in the Lord. They were fellow laborers in the gospel. Labored much in the Lord. Now, I bring that up at the beginning because um, a lot of people give Paul, I believe, a real bad rap. They say that Paul was a male chauvinist. Now, I've read that a lot, and I've heard that a lot as an accusation, that Paul really treated women badly and... Uh, you know, didn't allow them the freedom. And it's like, whenever I hear that, I think, boy, the, these people either haven't read the New Testament much or they've read, read it in a very cursory, superficial manner and they know nothing of ancient history. Being a woman in ancient times was tough until the gospel came. The gospel is the great liberator of women. It really was. In ancient times, when a child was born... People hoped for a boy. They were disappointed when it was a girl. In fact, they were oftentimes in Greek, Roman, and even Jewish circles having parties because the name was taken from man to man. And they would often go away very disappointed and, and forsake the party when a girl was born. There was in Roman law something called the patria potestas, which gave the father the ultimate authority over his family, over his children, and could even have his children killed. And there's an ancient letter, I didn't dig it out today, but I found it, an ancient uh, uh, Roman letter where the father says to his wife, because he's out at battle, um, I hope you have a safe delivery, and I hope that all goes well. If the child, when the child is born, his words... If it is a boy, rejoice. If it is a girl, dispose of it. His own words. A father said that to his wife. Dispose of it. Get rid of it. Give it up for adoption or just take it out of the house. Then Jesus Christ came on the scene. And Paul the Apostle said, There's no Jew, no Gentile, no male, no female, Scythian, bond or free. We're all one in Christ. And the barriers were broken. And look how Jesus treated women. Remember the woman that came to Jesus who was caught in adultery? And all the guys wanted to stone her. And Jesus said, woman, where are your accusers? Remember he started writing in the sand and all the guys said, ooh, I got to go. Probably he was writing their secret sins, presumably in the dirt. 
But he said, go and sin no more. Now, he wasn't excusing her, but he simply was saying that he was not subject to this male dominance in the culture where they would excuse the man caught in adultery, but would condemn this woman. That's why Jesus wrote in the dirt. Because they said she was caught in adultery. Well, it takes two to tango. And they only brought the gal. How come they didn't bring the guy? Because that was their thinking. It's her fault, not his fault. And Jesus didn't become a party to that at all. So he begins with speaking about a woman named Phoebe. I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many and of myself also. The word commend is I recommend or I vouch for. Phoebe was the one that brought the letter of Paul to the church in Rome. And so he recommends her to them. She was unknown until she showed up with this letter, this document. There were no carbon copies. That was the letter. And so she brought it safely from Centria, or from Corinth actually, to Centria all the way to Rome. Paul wrote it in Corinth, and she delivered the letter. Now, uh, notice the word servant in that verse. It's the Greek word diakonos, which sounds like deacon. And even the New Living Translation translates it deacon or deaconess. Phoebe was a deacon in the early church, a deaconess. The word deacon is simply a servant, and it's used not always of an official title. It was an unofficial title, sometimes it uh, just meant a servant, uh, somebody who would um, visit the sick, visit the prisoners, um, help people who needed it in the church. But it comes to us from Acts chapter 6 where there was a need in the daily ministration or distribution of the goods between the Greeks and the Hebrews. And uh, they chose seven men full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. You know the story. And that's where the idea of this servant, this deacon, comes from. It could be that she simply served people, or it could be that she had an official title of a deaconess in the early church. Point being is that women were important in the ministry of Paul, as they were also in the ministry of Jesus. I mentioned the woman that was caught in adultery. Jesus had women who followed him in his ministry. Uh, Luke mentions Susanna, Joanna, and Mary of Magdala, or Mary Magdalene, who followed Jesus and ministered to him. They were part of the team. The only restriction of women in the ministry, Paul seems to mention, is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he says, I don't allow a woman to usurp authority over a man. That is, he wasn't, she wasn't to become the senior pastor in a church, but she could minister in a variety of ways. And here's one. She was a helper, a servant, a deaconess in the early church. Verse 2, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. The term assist is a legal term. It's the same word Paul used of his trial before Nero when he writes Second Timothy, the fourth chapter, I believe, 
And he talks about his defense in the gospel and the assistance, the deliverance that he received. And so it speaks of help in a legal trial. And so it's thought that Phoebe came to Rome and she had official business. She probably had a lawsuit she had to settle in Rome. And since she was going to Rome, she brought the letter as an official ambassador from Paul to the church. And so he's saying, she needs your help, your assistance, your um, vouching for her, even as I vouch for her in this letter. Indeed, he said, she has been a helper of many. The Greek word helper is the word prostastis, which speaks of a benefactor, somebody who was very wealthy and gave money to Paul probably or to the church for the ministry. She had the gift of giving. Now, beginning in verse 3, he lists those names. And I would divide this chapter up in simply personal greetings from chapter 3 or verse 3 to verse 16. Personal greetings and then second, practical warnings because beginning in verse 17, he closes it off with a list of warnings for the early church. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. It's a husband and wife team. And great that their names sort of sounded alike. They were meant for each other. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. One of the people I want to meet, or one of the couples I want to meet when I get to heaven, is Aquila and Priscilla. What a neat team. Neat gospel team, and a true gospel team of husband and wife. Their story begins in the book of Acts. They met Paul in Corinth. They were tent makers. Paul was a tent maker. Corinth was a commercial city, a great place to do business. But they came to Corinth because of persecution that happened in Italy, in Rome. They used to live in Italy, it says in Acts, until Emperor Claudius in 49 AD persecuted uh, the Jewish people, expelled the Jews from Rome, and so the Jews had to find another place to live. These guys ended up in Corinth. It's sort of interesting, if you study history, as to why he expelled them from Rome. Suetonius, one of the ancient historians, tells us that Claudius found the Jews were disputing over each other, uh, over an issue of a person named Crestus, which we would transliterate, spell it C-H-R-E-S-T-U-S. The Jews were rioting over a man named Crestus, which many scholars believe is Christ. It would be Christus, simply misspelled, because he didn't know the spelling. He presumed, who is this Crestus guy? And the idea is that many of the Jews in Rome were coming to Christ. They were Messianic Jews. They started to believe in Jesus Christ, which caused a division among the synagogues in Rome, and a great riot broke out. And so Claudius, in 49 AD, expelled them couple of them, Aquila and Priscilla, tent makers, went to Corinth. Paul ended up in Corinth. That's where they met each other. And they were great help to Paul in his ministry. Later on, they went to Ephesus. 
They were also very helpful because they met a man by the name of Apollos, remember the story, very eloquent Alexandrian Jew who knew the scriptures, who knew Christ, and he preached the gospel, but he just didn't know all of the story. It says Aquila and Priscilla took him aside and trained him in the way more accurately. They gave him the full gospel. Jesus Christ come to earth, suffering, dying, rising again from the dead, filling people with the Holy Spirit. And so they sort of discipled him. They trained him. So they were in Corinth. They then went to Ephesus, where they trained Apollos. And notice what Paul says here, who risked their own necks for my life. Paul says, I love these guys. They were always helpful to me. In fact, they defended me. They stood up for me. They risked their own lives. Now, unfortunately, we don't know what this refers to. We don't know what story or instance where they actually stood up to defend him. Probably it happened either in Corinth or in Ephesus because those are the two places where they really helped Paul and it was tough going in both of those places. When Paul went to Corinth, the Jews rose up against him and they took one convert Sosthenes, who was the ruler of the synagogue, converted to Christ under Paul's ministry, beat him and rose up against Paul. And it could be that Aquila and Priscilla stepped in and removed Paul and protected him, risking their own lives. The other possibility is that he was in Ephesus. We know he was there for three years. When he went to Ephesus, there was a guy named Demetrius, who was a silversmith. And uh, he crafted little images, little statues of the chief goddess in Ephesus named Diana. Some of you remember that. And uh, because so many people were coming to Christ and forsaking their idols, it meant that their statue-making business was in jeopardy. So Demetrius, the silversmith, got some of his colleagues together and complained, saying, you know, th this guy's going to drive us out of business. Everybody's coming to Christ, and they don't worship idols. They don't have statues in their house. So our business is going down the tube. So they, they sort of formed a riot and incited almost the whole city to gather into that huge 20,000-seat amphitheater in Ephesus. And for two hours, the whole town cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. They chanted that for two hours. And people became excited and became violent and started getting rowdy. And it could be that Aquila and Priscilla at that point risked their own necks and stood up for Paul and actually took him out of that situation or helped take him out of that situation while he was in emphasis. We don't know exactly, but that's a couple possibilities. Verse 5, notice, likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Great couple. They had open hearts, and they had an open home. The church met in their home. They had a home Bible study. We would say they had a kinship group. They had a home fellowship, right? Now, for the first 200 years of church history, there were no church buildings there was nothing really official. The church was under great persecution and great duress. And usually, they met in people's houses, like they still do in many places in China, house churches. Or they met in catacombs because of the persecution in Rome. 
But it wasn't until about 200 AD that the church became a little more official. They were granted property. They could have their own buildings, and they had official church buildings after about that point. Now, I've always loved home Bible studies, and I love people who open up their homes. It's not an easy thing to do. In fact, if you are a host home for one of our home fellowships, you know that it's a, it's a commitment. You know, you clean it up before, and then you really clean it up when they leave because they come and spill stuff and make messes, and it's just not the same. It's a big commitment. You adjust your schedule. Our church began in a home Bible study. This is why I love it so much. When we first gathered together here in Albuquerque, we had moved from Southern California. We met in the Lakes Apartments because one of the guys that moved with us had an apartment there and had a, there was a clubhouse that you could rent for 15 bucks a week. And so we rented the clubhouse, and it was a home Bible study environment. And I took out the guitar, led a few songs, opened the Bible to John, went through a chapter, closed it, and did that every week. And so I always have an affinity and a love for those who open up their homes and start a home Bible study because that's where we began. In fact, we were very happy right there until it started growing so big that we couldn't keep people in the home Bible study any longer. When we had 60 and 75 people, that was about the capacity of that room. That was maxed out. Then we started having up to 100, 125, and they were sitting out in the hallway overflowing. And so someone came up to me and said, what are you going to do? You have a home Bible study. It's, it's, it's grown too big. I said, I don't know what we're going to do. I've never done this before. I'm happy just to meet here. Well, you can meet here. We're, we're too big. What do you do next? I, said, I don't know, but Monday night we'll start having prayer meetings and we'll start praying about what to do next. That's when we found the theater um, that is now bound to be red right over here, the Far North Cinema Theater. At that time, I didn't know what to do Till one Sunday I walked by the theater and I saw a big old sign. I was praying, Lord, what do you want us to do? And the big sign said, rent this theater. <laughs> I said, all right. If that's what you want us to do, we'll rent the theater. So I walked in and said to the manager, we have a home Bible study that meets and uh, we're looking for a place. Uh, you say you want to rent this theater. Well, I'd like to rent it. The guy said, well, you know, we really don't want to rent the theater, but our bosses, the owners of the theater, made us do this because they want to generate more income. And there really isn't a time that we can rent this theater to you because we show movies all day long. There's only one time it's available. I said, when would that be? He said, Sunday morning, <laughs> up till about noon. I said, where do I sign? That was perfect. So that's when we moved from the home out into something more official, and, and it wasn't official to most church people because it was in a theater and then it was in a storefront, and it wasn't until we got something really official like this soccer thing that we became recognized as an official church. Um, it's sad to me that traditionally, at least in our culture, the emphasis of church is on the buildings. They are so secondary. It's simply a convenience. I mean, it's nice to have a building and a parking lot, and it's simply as a place to gather, but it's like the, the most unimportant thing of all, isn't it? It's the lunch sack. The most important thing about lunch isn't the sack. It's the lunch. And so to sit around and go, oh, we have a big meeting, we need, need a little lunch sack here, we've got to make that lunch sack look good, and what about our lunch sack? Do you like our lunch sack? How's it look? It's, you need a lunch sack, but you better make sure there's lunch in there. 
And so the nourishment of the Word of God is more important. Greet my beloved Apennitus, who is the first fruits of Achaia or Achaia to Christ. In other words, the first convert of Asia Minor was this guy. Now, he calls them first fruits. I don't know how many have been through our study in Romans. If you, if you remember back to what he's referring to, go back to chapter 15. You can just probably on the same page look back at verse 16. Paul says, That I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God. Remember what we described that as? It meant it's my priestly duty, my liturgical duty. He's using the analogy of the temple priest. That the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And if you remember, we explained that Paul was seeing himself in the role of a priest offering up saved Gentiles, those he led to Christ, as an offering to God. Lord, these people were led to Christ. Here, they're the offering. They're the holy sacrifice. And we mentioned that in Jerusalem, in the temple, Gentiles were not allowed to go through the inner courts and get close to where people said God hung out. They had to stay way in the outer court. Paul here says, not only can they come close, they are the offering. They are the holy offering. And so they were the offering to God. Paul saying the first fruits of that offering, the first convert was this guy named Epinetus, the first fruits of Asia Minor or Achaia to Christ. Verse 6, greet Mary who labored much for us, we don't know who this is or how she labored, but this is one of four women in this chapter that he said worked hard. The word labor means they labored to the point of exhaustion. Now, I don't want to slight men because I think men and women play a vital role in the local church, but it is true that when it comes to those who volunteer for stuff to be done around the church, it's usually the women. You could say, ah, well, they got time. They make time, gentlemen, and they're the ones that get involved and often serve and often pray, and here's one of them who labored to the point of exhaustion. Verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen, my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Now these two are either two women... Or, it's a married couple. You say, well, there's a big difference. Yes, there is. The reason we don't know is the name here, uh, Junia, could be either. It's a transgender name. Just like you'd have Pat. Pat could be a guy, it could be a gal. Tracy, Terry, these are names that could mean, often applied to a man or a woman, and so was Junia. So it was either a married couple or it was a couple of gals that served in the Lord. We don't know a lot about them other than this, but there's four things Paul says about them. Number one, they were fellow Jews. That's what he means by my countrymen. They were fellow Jews, probably from Israel, around Jerusalem. Possibly even relatives, some think, of Paul. Second, they had a jail ministry at one time. They were prisoners. Probably for the same reason Paul was a prisoner oftentimes and had a jail ministry because he was persecuted. It could be even that they shared cells next to each other. Wouldn't that be interesting? 
being bound in chains. Next cell over is Paul. Talk about being mentored. You know, you listen to Paul witness to everybody that was chained to him or that came to see him. He did that when he writes to the Philippians. He says, even those in Caesar's household, some of them know Christ, and they greet you. And he even lists some of them here in this chapter. So they were countrymen. They did jail time with Paul. They had a solid reputation among church leaders, the apostles. They were notable among them. And fourth, they were saved before Paul was. Probably they left Jerusalem when in Acts chapter 8 a great persecution arose and they fled to surrounding regions and they probably helped Paul out from the early days soon after he was converted. Verse 8. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Who is Amplius? Well, we can only guess. But I'll tell you this. From history and archaeology, Amplius is a common name for the slaves, many of the slaves, some of the slaves of Caesar's household. The name appears a couple of times among Caesar's household in the annals and archaeologically. Most Romans had three names. Slaves only had one name. In the catacombs in Rome, there is a tomb, there is a grave marker, ornately decorated with one singular name, Amplius. They figure it is from the time and refers to this Amplius. Because it has only one name and not three, we know it was a slave. Because it was so ornately decorated, they think it was some Christian esteemed by the early church. Probably this one. Held in high honor because of his love for the Lord. And Paul says, he's my beloved or my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Urbanus, a common slave name, means literally city-bred. Could be that he was a slave born in the country, raised in the city, you know, a city slicker. Raised in Rome, as a slave in Rome. Then Stachys is an uncommon name. It means ear of corn, literally. And... uh, It was a name found among the royal household of Rome. So in the same sentence, and I bring this up, I think, for its interest, in the same sentence he mentions a common slave and an uncommon royal figure. Mixes them together, mingles them. Because that's exactly, folks, what the cross does. There's no higher or closer or more notable or more important The cross is the great bulldozer. We're all at the same level before the foot of the cross. No one's any better. No one's any worse. God doesn't hear Billy Graham's prayers quicker than he would listen to your prayers. We're all the same. And so they're put here together. Beautiful. Verse 10. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. We know nothing about him either. We don't know anything about his relationship to Paul. We know only one thing. He was approved in Christ. The word approved means tested. It was a word used in ancient times to refer to metal, silver and gold that was tested to see how pure it was. So whoever he was, he went through trials and he passed the test. He did well. He served the Lord well through tough times. Greet those, verse 10, who are of the household of Aristobulus. 
or some call him Aristobulus. I guess it just sort of depends what part of the country you're from. Aristobulus, we think, was a relative of Herod Agrippa I, and this same person was the grandson of Herod the Great. If that's true, that means he was a close associate or a friend of the Emperor Claudius and probably was a great influential figure to him. Probably, Aristobulus was not saved. This is not addressed to him personally, but to the household, it says, of Aristobulus, members of his household, slaves, those in his employ who had come to Christ. And so we have this list. Some are known, some are unknown. Some are slaves, some are royal. Some are men, some are women. All of them are important. All of them are listed as notable figures that receive Paul's affection. I stress this point often, but I don't think it could be stressed often enough that in the body of Christ, every person is important. One of the reasons the church malfunctions is because people don't see this. People don't believe they're important. Ah, you know. Who am I? What can I do? I can't get involved. I'm really of no consequence. And so we are robbed of a gift that could be exercised because of that thinking. Remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? He said, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Or if the ear should say, because I'm not an eyeball, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? What if the whole body were an eye? Can you imagine a huge six-foot eyeball rolling around? It might have great vision, but it's sort of useless, right? It's monolithic in function. Paul compares in that verse in Corinthians two parts of the body that are seen versus two parts of the body that are unseen. We see people's eyes. We notice them usually right off the bat. And hands play an important role. Feet you don't see. They're covered up. But feet are important. What if a foot said, well, nobody shakes me. They just shake the guy's hand. Nobody sees me. It's probably a good thing. But you're still important. People don't walk on their hands. They walk on their feet. It provides stability. And though... We notice people's eyes more than their ears. I mean, that's true, right? We don't say, boy, she has beautiful earlobes. I'll tell you what. One of the first things I noticed about my wife were her beautiful eyes. Not her ears. They were covered up by hair. But you need your ears to hear. And every part of the body of Christ is so vital. And so every name, so important, playing an important function. Deaconess, somebody in royal occupation, couples like Aquila and Priscilla who were helpers and opened up their homes, etc. Verse 11, greet Herodian, my countrymen, greet those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Herodian is related somehow to the Herod family. We don't know how, but because the name appears here, we're pretty sure that this person and Aristobulus were pretty close because they were all tied to the same family. Then the name Narcissus appears. We know who he is. History tells us that he was well-known 
He was powerful. He was very rich because he was the secretary of the emperor Claudius. Very influential figure. He was rich because of all the bribes he took, he received. People would bribe him to give correspondence to the emperor Claudius or to get an audience with him. And so he became very wealthy through bribery. And uh, he himself was probably not a Christian, but notice again, greet those of the household. Some of the household of this person were saved. Now, in verse 12, and well, verse 12, he greets three women. Greet Trophena, which means delicate, Trophosa, which means dainty, who have labored in the Lord, probably two elder women, maybe even sisters. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Persis is a name that speaks of Persia. It's probably the country of her birth. Then it says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. By the way, you know how everybody's looking for Bible names to name their children? Nobody ever gets into chapter 16. Have you noticed that? So just a hint. If you want to grab a name that's a biblical name that nobody uses, you may want to try Rufus. I don't know. Now, Rufus is an interesting character. We know who he is. When Mark writes the Gospel of Mark, and by the way, he wrote it from Rome, he mentions Rufus. He says in Mark chapter 15, verse 21 and 22, here's the identity, Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, from Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross, and they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated the place of a skull. Mark had no reason at all to tell us that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus unless the church at Rome knew who he was. And they knew who he was. Paul mentions him here. What we think happened is because of the contact that this family had with Jesus Christ, they came to know Christ. Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross of Christ, was dead when Paul wrote the letter. Otherwise, he would have mentioned him. But he mentions Rufus, his son, who came to Christ as well. And so did uh, Mrs. Simon of Cyrene, or Rufus's mother, because notice that he says, his mother and mine. Now, it doesn't mean that they had the same um, mother literally, but it was a, an affectionate way of saying, you know, she takes care of me. Just like I feel I have many moms in this fellowship. Elder, uh, elderly gals who give me advice or bake a pie or some of those great things just sort of take care of you. Mom away from mom. That was Rufus's mother and mine. Verse 14. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are all with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus, all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Now, we don't do this much, do we? The holy kiss bit. Yet both Peter and Paul mentioned that the church ought to greet each other with a holy kiss. It's something the early church did. Justin Martyr said, upon finishing our prayers, we greet one another with a kiss. 
Tertullian later on explained it was a kiss of peace. It was an overt way of expressing love and affection. The reason the church did it is because when a person came to Christ in those days, more often than not, they were kicked out of their families, especially if they were Jewish. And so since they had no family, the idea is, we love you. You're part of the same family. We have the same father. The holy kiss, well, you know, the kiss in ancient days was done in a number of ways. They would, they would kiss the forehead or kiss the cheek or the beard if it had hair on it. And it was simply a greeting. The church did it. It was holy. It was a holy greeting. Now, we have to contextualize this, I think, from culture to culture. Sometimes it's a holy hug. Sometimes it's a holy handshake. But the idea is we greet each other in the name of the Lord, and we say, you're part of the same family. And if one thing we ought to be good at, it's fellowship. It's receiving people in Christ. You know, the first time I walked into a church and saw people hugging each other, I really did. I thought, this is weird. This is a little goofy. I don't think I'm into this. So somebody would go up to hug me and go, hey, how you doing? And then I thought, how beautiful this is. How wonderful to be embraced and to say we're part of the same family. J.B. Phillips translates this verse, Give one another a hearty handshake all around for my sake. He just sort of modernized it for modern usage. Well, that's, that is the um, personal greetings, and now we get to the practical warnings in the next few verses. And uh, honestly, I don't know how far we're going to get. He says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. That sort of sounds out of place, doesn't it? Paul says, greet so-and-so, beloved in the Lord, labored for me in the Lord, etc., etc. And then he says, now I warn you, watch out for these jokers out there. You say, well, that's sort of out of character with the rest of the scenario, the rest of the writing. No, it's not. Part of love, part of love for God's church is to protect the flock. And Paul, with the heart of love for these people, loving them, warns them of those who would upset the truth of the gospel with ungodly doctrines, ungodly practices, which would in turn upset their love. Because true love must be based upon truth. True love must be based upon truth. Well, we don't have time to get into it, so we'll finish this next time. By God's grace...